What's your news, Jan? Uh, have you heard about the Melbourne Writers' Prize, David? I've heard about the Melbourne Writers' Prize. And did you hear who won? I did, actually. It has a very similar-sounding name to yours. Congratulations, Andrea Goldsmith, for winning the Melbourne Writers' Prize for the Memory Trap. Who happens to be your oh, sister-in-law. Sister-in-law. There <laughs> okay. we go. Now let's get on to other <laughs> authors. Our authors, full studio. Jan, imagine, published or not, as an allegory for life. We represent the passing multitudes of ideas and opinions that the listeners can interpret at their leisure. Well, my novel today, Tide Town, is a pilgrim's progress of allegory as the reader explores the significance of localities like the Island of Good Hope and characters like the fishcutter twins, Perch and Carp. The author is Robert Power. So, Robert, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you very much, David. Now, the, to be here. the setting here is so essential. If I can just sort of read out, Tidetown could tell the story. Though memories are cursed, forgetting may be a better healer. Through its laneways, within its courtyards, the yellow wallpaper of its parlours, this hinterland could recount many tales, its moors and sea caves, cliffs and wetlands. Given a, a voice, the woods could sing out secrets, the meadows whisper love sighs. Some say the world is such an uncertain place. Shifting sands cover the tired and tested ways to confound and confuse the old. So this is almost a... Uh, setting that's alive. <coughs> how, how would you respond to that? What have well, you done there? The setting for me is really important. Um, I, I've always loved the kind of windswept seascape towns of Dylan Thomas, and I was brought up in the UK. And as a kid, I would listen to Richard Burton reciting Under Milk Wood, and I think there's an element of that. I'd have to be you know, clear that for me that setting is very evocative and I think as you as you read there there's a there's a sense of But it's almost alive mm. in terms of it's one of the characters. Yes. And also there's another locality you've got here, mm. the Island mm. of Good Hope, mm. which is a sort of convergence point for mm. a lot of the storyline mm. strands. Mm. Yeah. So uh, you're absolutely right, David. In a way, the I wanted to put a setting that's almost timeless. Um, and as you said in that first paragraph, they kind of think nothing much changes here. But offset is the Island of Good Hope where there's an ancient monastery and where there's um, a group of monks that are kind of challenging some of the um, the time, time, timeless ideas of that town. And a paragraph or two on, I wash up onto that shore um, from a slave ship, a, um, a traditional healer from Africa. I just thought, what would happen if in this town where everything's just trundling along and if you just throw in, wash up onto the beach, this very strange black-skinned Sangoma from Africa? Well, what you're doing is you're bringing these storylines um, together in Town. I mean, mm. the characters themselves, like the fish cutter twins, Perch mm. and Carp, mm. who have their own little story. You've got people like Joshua Barnum, who's the deputy mayor, mm. Oscar Flowers. So each of these characters have their own story, mm. so to speak, in mm. this mm. setting. So in many ways, Tide Town's not just um, well, it's every town mm. uh, and no town, mm. so to speak. Entirely. So I, I was very careful, and, and my editor was fantastic on this, to ensure that there are no real um, markers to a particular time and place. So it's really up to the reader to imagine that town. And, and yeah, Under Milk Club was a great... Um, uh, source for me, but also as a kid, I loved Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, mm. 
Don Quixote, this idea of a sort of journey through time and space. Um, and this this novel itself, it's actually a sequel to my first novel, In Search of the Blue Tiger. So many of the characters that were in the first book reappear here. But I was also very aware of uh, writing a book that stood alone. So it could be, although it's a sequel, it's five years on from that first book, it very much stands alone as well. Well, in some ways, it's also, it serves several purposes. I mean, one of the characters, Oscar Flowers, who Mm -hmm. comes from the previous novel, is on his own personal journey, which sort of goes out, he sets out to Mm -hmm. sea, Mm -hmm. but he will come back. He's the pilgrim, in many ways, in in this progress. It's like, what did Tolstoy say? You know, the best books are Someone goes on a journey, someone comes back, or a stranger appears in town. So what I tried to do here is have someone goes on a journey. So at the end of the last book, Oscar set off on his journey as a 12-year-old boy. So I wondered what would happen in the previous five years. So I set him off on his journey away from Tired Town. Um, and many things happened to him over that period of time. But I wanted to bring him back to see how his experiences would then impinge upon that town. But at the same time, Tide Town is evolving. Mm. You've got other threads. So you've actually mentioned uh, Zakora or Zakora? How would you pronounce it? Zakora. Zakora. Um, Zimbabwean. <laughs> Zimbabwean. So he's bringing his... Uh, influence mm. and mysticism, spirituality. Yes. You've got the Fishcutter twins who mm. uh, and their machinations, mm. and uh, mm. are they plotting mm. another murder? Because mm. that's why mm. they were put into prison in the first place. Mm. And they sort of have their own spirituality Mm. you've got then uh the monastery again with another Mm. spirituality Mm. so tide town really is a an amalgam of Mm. all of these trends Mm. thoughts ideas uh, taking place i was really interested in bringing those different um belief systems together and see what would happen because that's what happens in any society isn't it i mean take australia you know we're, we're a multicultural society with many different influences right up until now with people being washed up on our shores and i wondered what would happen if a town that was very set in its ways had these different influences coming in well this then uh sort of goes into that notion of allegory hmm. are you trying to say something about what is taking place today then? Well, I think uh, you have to intuitively, or whether, whether it's explicit or implicit. I mean, you know, all, all, all my writing, I'm sure many people's writing are influenced by their own experiences. I wanted to just let the story tell itself. So what happens if you bring in a Sangoma with, you know, traditional healing experience from, from Africa? What if you bring in the fish cutter twins back with their background in messianic cults and then you've got the the monks with their kind of very interesting spirituality based in some judo christian basis and then in the midst of that you've got this secular town and you haven't mentioned the plague yet so we threw the plague in as well just to see what would happen if you threw some because i wanted to look at really the what happens to a very self-contained entity australia's a little bit like that mm. and bringing in lots of different influences and challenging what people think is the essence of their belief systems and of their own culture. Well, yeah, looking at those questions of life. But, I mean, you do bring in this notion of a virus and a plague, and mm. I was wondering if you were writing yourself into the novel, given your background yeah, in this well, area. Yeah, day well, my day job is in infectious diseases. In fact, this is the third novel I've brought some kind of a plague in, and the one I'm writing at the moment, which is a follow-up to my second novel, is a medical thriller, and it's all about multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. So, yes... But only because it's just another influence. If you, if you, there, there are many other 
influences that come into the town. And I thought, well, that's a, that's a threat and challenging what people think is the tried and tested ways. So if you've got something external, which they kept saying, this won't affect us. You know, let, let's, let's put a boundary around this, well, which is know, what they did with the bubonic plague, of course. Yes, and, and so they've, in some ways they've isolated themselves. Yes. But in, in one way, isolating yourself from a disease, but also then you're isolating yourself from ideas. Exactly. And therefore you limit yourself. Yes. So when Oscar comes back, having spent five years travelling the... the the, the high seas of yes. the globe, he comes back with ideas. And I think that's really what I was trying to do, was to look about how do people, once they're challenged, and you didn't mention yet the uh, the tongueless Harlequin from the circus, but that's another character who but brings this, other ideas. This is it. There are just so many. Which is actually a reference to the, you know, Exile in the Kingdom, Albert Camus. The very first story was a man says he's got no tongue. Do you remember, anyone remember that yes. story? Yes, yes, no tongue. So I was thinking, what happens if a man turns up with no tongue? How does he communicate? He's a Harlequin, and, but yeah. he he's the one that actually really gets on very well with Sakura, the Sangoma, because they have this relationship they develop through dance and through mime, and people observe that. And what do they do if you observe a harlequin in his checkered suit and his chalked face and a tall black Sangoma traditional healer carrying out a mime on the hilltop? So you are, you know, Mr. Mr. Joe Blow, ordinary, going about your business in Tidetown. But all of this sort of leads then to a more philosophical discussion, because you raise... Uh, all sorts of questions. I mean, the fish cutter twins and their messianic nature, you know, religious mm. fundamentalism. Mm. At the same time, you've got the monks actually being very open mm. and welcoming. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it gets down to what sort of attitude mm. we should have yes. and uh, how limited we are. We have refugees, we have mercenaries, yeah. greed, capitalism. Yeah. There's a discussion about the notion of evil yes. At, yes. at some stage. Yes. Yes. So this... That's another guy. Judge the judge comes back. If you remember, he the, was. You did, the, Jan will remember in the first book. There's a judge. He comes back. But you're absolutely right, David. And what I wanted to explore there is you know, what is the basis of you know any 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 religion, any philosophy. It's basically you know do to others as you would wish to be done to yourself. The Water Babies, Charles Kingsley. You know, it's exactly that notion. Mrs do to others as you wish to be done by to yourself. And I wanted to say, well, okay, let's, let's, let's work backwards from that. How do you get to that point? So the Fishcutter twins, although they denounce their original Jehovah's Witnessism, they create something else. And you look at cults, they're continually recreating the cultisms. But are we therefore compelled by our own natures in some ways? Can we sort ah, of... There's, there's the debate about evil, because is there something fundamentally evil in human beings or his evil context, and that discussion the judge has with, with the with the soldier mm. in their in their coach going off to war is very much about to what extent can we change? You know, even if you, you know, there's a bit, a bit of good in the worst of us and a bit of bad in the best of us, and and is there a justifiable evil yeah. in killing exactly. others to pr to protect the good? Which is what they discuss in terms of the the battle they're about to commence. Yes. So I think you're absolutely right there, David. That what I was trying to do, and some of these things, I don't know how other people's right, but these things kind of just emerge and 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 they create themselves these storylines. Especially when I once I threw one or two characters in explosively, what would they do? What would that judge do if he was sitting next to um, a soldier, Colonel Baptiste? How, what would that conversation? How would that conversation develop? And similarly with the Sangoma, you know, if he's thrown into the monastery, how are the monks going to respond to some guy who's got this animistic view of the world? Yes, and 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 you actually have to challenge your thinking. And perhaps there needs to be more of that done today, given mm. the 
world is becoming smaller, so yeah. they say. Yes. And and everything we now have to uh, address in terms of mm. these issues that mm. we're faced with in the world. Uh, and I was talking earlier on to you, David. In the, we had a lovely cup of coffee together, David and I, <laughs> next door. But last night on national radio, there was a discussion about the pursuit of happiness and how many of us are pursuing happiness. What I wanted to look into in this book is... What about the pursuit of purpose and finding a purpose in life? And for many of the characters, they're striving to find a purpose. And it's not to me, and, and any philosophy or religion is not about seeking happiness. It's about seeking a purpose in life that may lead to happiness. And, and also not necessarily about seeking something that is right and correct or wrong. Yes. It's a, a journey at mm. Pilgrim's Progress. And mm. you sort of have this, uh, well, one of the quotes, and there are other quotes that uh, are in the book that could be taken out as well. But uh, you have Brother Saviour saying this, life is full of events, as you have experienced. But that is all they are. Plagues, mm. war, governments... But meaning and purpose will always endure, mm. and the spirit of the human heart. So we will continue in our work, doing all that mm. we can. Mm. So is yeah. that the purpose of life? Well, that's what, I mean, that's what Brother Saviour says, but that's what Viktor Frankl says. That's what the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying says. You know, until we divest all things of their, of, of their identity, we will never find happiness so you know sadness and joy are the same thing so life i think life is a sequence of events and it's how we respond to them and you know as you said you know david's part of this book is about exploring what happens to a community to individuals when you're challenged in terms of your own understanding of the world and it's how we address those mm. events mm. that make us who we are yes. in terms of, of taking them on if i can just look at john dunn no man is an island mm. what he actually says in that is that we are a book that is translated each yeah. day yes. and um, by our interaction with others so we can be rewritten by how we respond to others yes. and such like. But there are all sorts of literary references. In I wanted this. to throw Don Quixote in there but you've because you've, that's exactly the same notion, isn't it? You know, he's on a journey but yeah. in fact at the second, when Cervantes re wrote the second version of Don Quixote, he actually put one of the critics in the book to actually say, what are you telling me about this book? And I think, again, you know, we have opportunities in our own writing to be that sort of, self, use characters to be self-reflective. And that opportunity then is therefore in this novel mm -hmm. because you can read into it uh, and follow a strand. Some, will, some strands, some stories will mm -hmm. have more appeal than others. We can't go into them all, uh, and we've used up our time, um, but the book is Tide Town, the author Robert Power, and it is from Transit Lounge. Jan? Well, from evil <coughs> and happiness and purpose, we're moving into... Another storyline. As I said, published or not, is an allegory. Drugs, laundered money, geological survey, surveys and big business in the mining boom. It sounds like it should be set in Perth. But J.M. Green has set her crime novel west of that city and even west of Melbourne. Welcome, Jenny, and tell us, who is Stella Hardy and where does she work? Hi, Jan. Um... Well, Stella Hardy is a social worker and she lives and works in the western suburbs of Melbourne. And, um, yeah, she's in her 40s and she's feeling pretty burnt out. In fact, how about reading us from page one? Just a description of how Stella feels about social work. Um, 
Social workers, on the other hand, were another genus entirely, Bleedingus heartius. I did a professional development course once and the trainer was one of those personality test fanatics. He said social workers were all the same, always figuring in the same quadrant, an excess of empathy, surplus imagination. But that was years ago. I was in my 40s now and running low on both. Yeah, so we know that she's well, she's good at a job, but she's challenged. She's really um, a bit tired of it all, isn't she? She is, and she's got a few um, issues going on in her personal life as well. So I think she's feeling very put upon at the very beginning of the novel. She's feeling isolated and um, exhausted. Well, one thing that you won't be exhausted by is the humour. Now, she works... Jenny Green has a way of manipulating initials of uh, companies. So she... at the Western... Well, she's actually works at, at the social working place called Worms. That's right, yeah. I really had a lot of fun with acronyms writing this book. <laughs> so she's a social worker with Worms. And then in comes the government and they make the social workers, the um, the the community, all into junkie. Yeah, so the, the Justice Department partners with um, the local Western Region Migrant Service and they, they come up with a program and the acronym um, is junkie, but they don't realise it until they're announcing it. <laughs> mm. And of course, we've all heard of all work with no play, but in this book, it's, it's turned to all work with a tie takeaway. Yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, the well, her job, what is one of her social cases? Um, well... With a, Mrs Chol. Yeah, so she's uh, working with a family that live in the Flemington Housing Commission flats and um, there's a single mother there from a, a refugee from um, the Horn of Africa and she has five children and the eldest has just been murdered. So Stella is providing support to the family. And this is where we actually start meeting some of the acquaintances in Stella's professional and also friendship life. Yeah, yeah. So um, in the block of flats where she lives, um, there's a woman who's recently moved to Melbourne from Perth and she hasn't got many friends and so Stella kind of takes her under her wing. She's a bit younger than Stella. So they have uh, DVDs and wine together yeah. on a Thursday night. Yeah. But then Tanya, what happens to Tanya? Well, that's that's another mystery. And um, when when Tanya goes missing, Stella's in that. I wanted to kind of create this quite awkward situation where they weren't really close friends, um, but Stella feels like she's the only one who can really raise the alarm that this person has not met. You know, made an appointment. And she doesn't know whether it's sort of serious or whether mm. this person likes to go missing, you know. Well, then she finds out that Tanya has another identity. This is a quote from the book. It didn't make sense for a girl with a billionaire father to leave town, change her name and work as a beautician. So whose daughter was Tanya? So Tanya um, is the um, daughter of a mining uh, billionaire tycoon from uh, Perth and um, there's a falling out in the family so she wants a clean slate and she moves to Melbourne, changes her name and wants to support herself and wants nothing to do with the family fortune. 
There's a lot of the plot that goes into geological surveys and laundered money, but you're going to have to read the book, Good Money, to find out about that. But what I enjoyed finding out, uh, things that I didn't know, shakalak, crank, <laughs> get-go, shabu, shard. What are they, those names for? Are there street names for um, ice or methamphetamine? <laughs> right. Mm. Do they just roll off your tongue then, Jenny? <laughs> well, I had to do a little bit of research, <laughs> but um, I do live in Footscray, so I, I hear them from time to time. <laughs> now, before we had Robert talking about how he gets uh, his profession into books, I love the way that... Um, Stella Hardy has friends who work in the in the police department and makes friends who work as journalists. But one of the big areas of help she gets is from the local librarian mm. who goes in and sources <laughs> business information for her. Sympathetic to that profession, perhaps. Yes, yes. I, my day job is librarian. <laughs> I've been a librarian for quite a long time. Well, she needs a lot of these friends to get her out of a lot of problems. Who taught her how to use a knife and a gun? Well, Stella grew up on a sheep farm and her father um, didn't hold back. He treated Stella like any farm worker. Um, she wasn't protected from the kind of um, rough side of sheep farming, so he mm. wanted her to get her hands dirty and get involved. So he um, has her at one stage... Um, Yes, well, we won't Using tell a knife. <laughs> and now she has, this family of hers causes her more embarrassment than pride. But you've got to read the book to find out that one too. Yeah, that's right. Look, I mean, everyone's embarrassed by their mother, let's be honest. <laughs> I'd like to meet the person who now, isn't embarrassed by their mother. The baddies are not just the drug dealers, but there's also the defence lawyers and racist police and New Zealanders who are still angry about the underarm... Greg Chapel, not Greg. Yeah, Greg Chapel. Um, one of the Chapel mm. brothers is Trevor. Mm, Trevor. That's right. <laughs> yeah, but nothing can to compare. Now, there's another quote from the book. There was a creep out there so terrifying that the mention of his name made hard-ass felon, felons flinch and cry for the protection of the law. <laughs> Along with uh, the crime adventure, we have the crime noir of writing these very short, snappy sentences. And these were two of my favourites, if you don't mind me quoting, from page one. My bedroom, population one. I was horizontal under the covers, imitating sleep when my mobile buzzed. <laughs> Good start. Yeah. And later on, thin curtains, no blinds. Morning light kicked me in the eyeballs. <laughs> it's a really, really snappy uh, book. This is good money. And I'm, I'm going to speak with somebody now who really knows about crime. Mary Dalmo. Hello, Jan. Oh, good. Now, Mary Dalmo, you and Can crime... We... Yeah, can I just say, I only know it from an arm sisters <laughs> as a reader, but I am responsible for bringing a crime and justice festival to Melbourne now for nine years. Nine years of crime and justice. But what I was surprised about, you're doing something a bit different this year. You're going to start the, the whole crime festival with great speeches. What's yes, all that about? 
This is a format that we've lighted on and we're going to run a series of events throughout 2016 and they're called Reader's Theatre. And it really harks back to Charles Dickens who would read his work and then go on to publishing. And we have two actors in the case of the festival, the wonderful Helen Morse and John McTernan, who will read Voices of Democracy, great speeches from history. And that's at four o'clock on Sunday. And we're, the session tonight is sold out, but they're doing an encore performance for us on Sunday. Fantastic. Things like Abraham Lincoln's The Gettysburg Address. Yes. And really, when you read these speeches from across the, the centuries, you realise how pertinent they are to our world today. So they resonate with us, and yet they tell us that if you have great leaders, you can have a way forward in the world. Well, I suppose when we look at what's, what's happening with society and novelists, they often pick up where our problems are. I've just been speaking with Jenny Green about good money and she's been telling me about all the new words for ice, which I had no idea about, but I do know it's a problem. That's right. Often through the works of fiction, we have the space, if you like, to discuss the big questions, where our society is headed, what kind of society we want. And I feel that very much with the crime fiction genre. And, you know, someone like Jenny and Gary Disher and Lucy Sussex, all of whom will be with us this weekend, are setting their books in Melbourne. So they're particularly relevant for us. So, Mary Delmont, just tell me, how does this festival work? If, if you know, crime readers want to come along, how do they do it? Yes, they can come on the day and book at the box office, but it's best to book ahead, and they can do that at www.crimeandjusticefestival.com. We have sessions running 10, 12, 2 and 4 across Saturday and Sunday, and we're very much hoping people will support it and get us through to our ten, a big 10 years next year. Oh, look, yeah, it's, it's really worthwhile. And it's in there at Reader's Feast. What a lovely, lovely spot it is to, write, to go and have a look at books. Well, we're very fortunate. We're in the old George's building. And, of course, with Lucy Sussex with us talking about Fergus Hume and his mystery of the handsome cab, oh, it really resonates because he was around this part of town. When George's was in full flight, yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, Mary Dumo, I wish you well for the uh, Crime and Justice Festival this week all around Reader's Feast and the Athen Athenaeum Library. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. Now, uh, back to Jenny. Um <coughs> Back to Jenny because we've got one minute and I want to grab into you and your writing. At the back of the book you say thank you very much to Tony Jordan. What do you call her? Um, a national treasure. <laughs> a national treasure. Yeah. And what, uh, the, the unpublished, uh, the manuscript of this book, what did it win? It, uh, I submitted it last year to the Victorian Premier's Award for Unpublished Manuscript and it was shortlisted amongst um, uh, two other authors. Um, the winner was Miles Allenson for uh, Fever of Animals, which has been published by Scribe, and Jennifer Down, who wrote Our Magic Hours coming out by text next year. Now, you list a lot of other writers in uh, your acknowledgements. So uh, do you find going and sharing your work with other writers worthwhile? Very helpful. Um, because I went to RMIT, I got to meet um, a lot of writers. And I just do find that, um, especially when, you know, it's a very long process writing a novel. And uh, this, this book took me three years. And it's very easy to kind of lose momentum, lose faith in yourself and to have other writers who know what you're going through and support you as invaluable. So I really wanted to acknowledge their assistance and support. How many drafts do you think you've done? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> A lot. Probably five, 
full drafts. Full yeah. drafts. Because it's quite, it's got a lot in it. Yeah. And it's sort of ha- you would have had to do a lot of research, you know, in the mining stuff mm. and where things sit. And we didn't even get to the creative juices <laughs> that um, that that Estella released <laughs> upon meeting uh, Peter Brophy, the artist. Yeah. Yes, it was the artistic juices, David. Well, I don't know what you were thinking about. <laughs> what on earth could you be implying? Jen? So I've been speaking with Jenny um, Jenny Green, J M Green about Good Money, published by a scribe. And I uh, was talking with Robert Power about his novel Tide Town, which is from Transit Lounge. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.